Brick Moon Fiction presents The Conductor by Eli Edelson Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle Introduction Usonia Wright boarded the train by herself for the first time, and it wasn't the short walk across her family's one acre of lush grass that she disliked. It also wasn't the slightly longer hike across the sky bridge from her home to the station that made her uncomfortable, though that was a long walk for a ten-year-old's legs. And it wasn't boarding the ARC train all alone that scared her. She'd done it a thousand times before with her parents. What made her uncomfortable was finding that all the seats were taken— and that she was unable to see past all the adults' waists and purses and automaton valets that surrounded her field of vision. The ARC train pulled along, leisurely it felt like, at 400 miles per hour, and Usonia had no way of knowing when to get off. Zamenhof Boulevard, Trier Terrace, Broadacre Valley, Tigris Cultural Center. These names, familiar though they may be, suddenly meant nothing to her. She tried to recall the usual vistas from riding the ARC, the seemingly endless fields of exact one-acre squares, one for each family, like an earthy quilt of old spreading across the land. She could picture in her mind the mineral tributaries, flashes of perfect cobalt water that appeared and disappeared beneath the train's magnet tracks. And at the end of all those homes and fields and rivers, there was the Edena Polis, rising above the rest, a city on great perfect disks that seemed almost to float, Usonia knew from class that the disks contained and harnessed the magnificent heat not far beneath the planet's surface. Edena, the planet that is, was known throughout the globular cluster for its unique underground chemistry. Extant tectonics, her teacher had said. Usonia liked how the words clacked and snapped in her mouth when she said it out loud, though she had no idea what they meant. What she did know for certain was that she had no idea where this train was taking her exactly. She had a sinking feeling she'd already missed her stop. So, rather than panic, she sung a little tune in her head. It was a happy tune. And when it ended, she decided to step off the ARC train and out into an unknown part of Edena Polis. Usonia knew at least that she was in the city center because of the superstructures all around. These towers and buildings were all made from the planet's rocks. They shone with a rainbow of metallic sheens, cadmium oranges and yellows, lac-dye red, Lazuline purples and blues, these strange colors truly seemed alive when in close contact with the stone. From afar, as from Usonia's home out in the herbs, the buildings appeared more like plain rocks. Here, as Usonia stepped up to a Tyrian purple tower that reached into the sky, she could swear its surface pulsed. People, adults, walked by her all around, oblivious to the power of these colors. Anyway, back to being lost— there's no sense being astray and staying still, she thought, so off she went, towards an alley that angled downwards quite steeply. This she found odd, because the police always seemed to go up and up and up with every step. Her feet tapped upon the smooth stairs, and before long that tapping was the only thing she heard. There were no commuters about, no tourists or automatons. Usonia was so far down this path that even the ever-present, ever-hovering sun was not making much inroads with its rays. Instead, her way was lit by the reflective glow of the buildings. She imagined, if these towers were people, giants or the like, that she'd be walking past the bottom of their heels. It would be a problem if they decided to start walking, wouldn't it? Little thoughts like this occupied her mind as a means of distracting herself from a growing sense of fear. She wasn't used to dim walkways, or being alone, or being hopelessly lost. But she kept on with it. 
After a while, her eyes adjusted to the gloom. Finally, the steps stopped going down and instead opened up into a wider area. Curious, hopeful of some vague salvation, she trotted ahead quickly. The heat of the circular plaza greeted her immediately, a heavy yet comforting warmth. It was a large open area, maybe half the size of her family's front yard, completely girded in by the foundational bases of the super towers. There were dozens of little pathways around the perimeter, similar to the one Eusonia had followed to this place, like little castava holes that plagued her father's fields, little tunnels perfect for those vermin to scurry in and out. In the center of this place was a statue. Though Eusonia couldn't quite tell its details from afar, it was clearly a woman. Life-size, but made from the most radiant Edena stone she had ever seen. Eusonia's feet started moving of their own accord, it seemed, until she was face to face with the stone lady. She was downright auric. A bright, gilded, halcyon halo emanated off the stone. The woman's face was serious, deep creases in her brow. She was sturdier built and shorter than anyone Eusonia had known in real life. She certainly hadn't been from Edena, far as she could guess. And though the statue's eyes were solidly hued with silver, there was something about them. Quite the woman, isn't she? Eusonia yelped, swung around, and fell on her behind all at once. The man had silently snuck up on her. It's okay, little one. Eusonia caught her breath and noticed that the man, though tall and strong, was quite old and quite blind. He was built of wiry muscle that seemed so tightly wound it might have been their tension alone that held him upright. There was no hollow finder, no valet, or anyone else with him. Somehow, he'd navigated to the empty plaza on his own. Eusonia asked, Are you really blind? Oh, indeed. A lifetime working in the ice quarry fields will do that for you. She didn't really know what he meant. The ice quarry fields were a harsh land full of mirror metals and sharp cave mouths, far from Edenapolis, maybe a half-day's ride on the Ark Train. Except that the Ark Train doesn't go there. And she hadn't heard of anyone working in ice quarry, let alone traveling through it. Eusonia made a mental note to ask her teacher about it in class the next day. There was still much of her homeland that she did not yet know. The man just stared, a loose smile on his face, as if he was actually looking at Eusonia. My name is Eren, and you are? Eusonia. Eusonia Wright. A pretty name for, I'm sure, a pretty girl. Just curious, do you know that other pretty lady's name? He motioned to the statue. No. You know who she is? No, sir. Our people need to remember... It's very important. I visit her every day, you know. Well, it would be my honor to teach you. Look at that inscription carved beneath her feet there. Eusonia looked. She found it. An odd name, if it was a name at all. She struggled to pronounce it. The... The... Conda... The Conductor, he quickly corrected. What's a conductor? The man smiled and lowered himself to the ground gingerly, till he was resting at the statue's feet. Eusonia sat in front of them, feeling the heat even more prominently at the ground level. It lulled her into a peaceful state as the man began the story. Coral Gidari There was a time when trains demanded a driver at the helm. Her name was Coral Gidari, but Dinaric Industries didn't care about names, only designations, so they designated her Conductor Alpha Echo 9. The label was somewhat superfluous considering she was the only conductor on the planet, 
that is, Planet Alpha Echo 9 of the Alpha Echo Cluster. Creative, huh? Back then, it was too early in the planet colonization schemes to have proper names that lasted. Until the blood was shed and the flag stayed upright, it would have to be numbers only, or nicknames. This place was nicknamed the Big Firecracker. It was mostly red on the surface, and hot. It wasn't just that the sun was overhead 36 hours of the day for half the year, and still 20 hours of the day the other half. Sure, that made it sunny, but the heat came from within the planet. She really hummed, the big firecracker, that is. Coral Gidari preferred whistling herself. She whistled and whistled and whistled some more to fill the time of her long solo journeys, days or weeks at a time, making up melodies or mangling Dinaric's corporate jingles or whistling songs that her parents had sang to her growing up or attempting improvised little ditties to match the odd jangling, beeping cacophony that came from her rig. That rig was her life more faithful than any human or android partner, a fifth-generation SC maglev Tokugawa. She named it Loco, nuclear core engine, one hundred feet of beautiful astronomical black carblite hull. On good even ground with no breeze or electric atmospheric problems, it could top four hundred miles per friggin' hour. Fellow conductors and engineers refer to that model as the Nasher because of how it tears up the earth beneath it as it goes. All it needs is a single track locked onto the ground, and Loco does all the rest. Dinaric Industries excelled at prefabbing the tracks and launching them from their spaceships, through the planet's stratosphere, plunking them down into the soil surface below. Entire transport networks could be set up before the scientists and geologists even put boots on the ground. Coral had seen them do it once from space, sending the tracks. It was like watching a velvet worm, that type from back on Earth, launch its silky strands of slime outwards to trap its prey. This fast-tracking system, pardon the pun, was the main reason Coral Gidari chose to work for Dinaric. They were the best space corps, if you were a conductor and wanted high pay on exotic new planets. They'd set up mining operations before the settlers could even finish their community dock, if you didn't mine the high-risk volatile atmospheres and whatnot. Then it was a dream job. After the first few months, Coral thought she had the big firecracker's deal down. She'd worked surfaces like it before. There were valuable materials to be had once you hit about one mile down into the ground. So, Dinaric had several mining spots set up. Probably cost a couple trillion each and were worth about twelve times more. They were like mini-cities. Artificial atmosphere, with water and supplies shipped in daily. They weren't self-sustaining in any sense. And like any gig she'd worked before, the only reason they needed a conductor was because the atmosphere was too crazy. Electrical currents, wind, and sandstorms rocked the areas around the mining sites daily. It was too rough for airdrops and pickups, even with cutting-edge crafts. So they stuck in tracks and brought a conductor who could reliably get the stuff to calmer climbs with designated launch zones. But aside from Dinaric, colonizers had staked their little plots, too. They came from all over and liked to think they were more utopian than the last guy. The employees from Dinaric, at least in Coral's pay class, derided them with the epithet thirsters. Thirsty for freedom or wealth or fame, but in reality just thirsty for water. Alpha Echo 9 was a huge planet, built of novel materials, but H2O was not among them. So the thirsters experimented with terraforming and atmospheric chemistry, but it was surely an uphill battle— even inside the most ideal zones of the surface, which, of course, was where Dinaric had their launch zones set up, too. 
but Coral didn't concern herself with that. All she knew was man was man, and even though the planet was huge, when have we ever learned to share? This was the part of her job she hated the most, the human element. The Thirsters were making claims on the land, even though Dinaric had done all the work up front. They protested and were ejected from the company sites. They made petitions at the planetary zoning conferences, so on and so forth. A conductor's job isn't to philosophize or pick sides. Her job is to do a job. Get the product delivered safely, through fire or wind or poison gas or any goddamn thing. Simple as that. The world outside was complex and angry and stormy, but inside the maglev's fuselage was quiet and simple, and all her own. Day 151 As Conductor Alpha Echo 9 pulled up to the docking bay, she could tell something was different, because there were the suits waiting for her, at least three levels above her pay grade. They rarely came down to the planet's surface, let alone plunge themselves into the deep grit of the mining stations. She made sure to pull up Loco nice and smooth so as not to ruffle their feathers. They didn't look happy to see her. Before she even had a chance to set both feet on the platform, one of the suits waltzed right up to her. He was tall, so tall he must have been raised on the naturals instead of supplements. White teeth, wide jaw, wore glasses just for the fashion of it, since surely he'd have corrected any ocular defects with his immense wealth. Coral found him monstrous in a silly sort of way. Hello, Conductor. I'm Mr. Ural, executive overseer of the company's holdings on Alpha Echo 9. Sir, an awkward pause. She was here to deliver product, not perform for the guy. Right. Got special cargo for you today. Had to come down and inspect it myself. Inspection went well? Coral was surprised to find herself intentionally prodding the man with a faux chipper tone. Don't ask me questions, Conductor. Just shut up and listen. Yes, the inspection went well, very well. Now it's on you to make sure the product gets delivered well. I'm told you're good. You wouldn't be talking to me if I wasn't. Damn right. Wish I wasn't talking to you at all here, though. Nothing personal. I just hate planets. Even Earth? What are you implying? Of course even Earth, especially Earth. That's where all the people are. Coral was starting to like this gangly misanthrope after all. She smiled. Don't smile, just listen. This cargo, it's got a density rating on a whole other level than the rock you normally carry. This is extremely volatile, dangerous stuff. On top of that, the product will be contained in an extreme high-temp cookbox. Microwave sourced? Don't guess, just listen. No, there's extra heating power required here, so it's a nuclear box grid that encloses the cargo. Will that be a problem? Nope. Loco can handle it. I want you to handle it, Conductor. You'll make the proper adjustments in consideration of the heavy load. You want to deliver it instead of me? Mr. Ural smiled big. He almost laughed. Mostly a whispery sort of wheeze came out. No, you're the right Conductor for the job. That's for damn sure. So what is it? Fancy new ore? New battery component source? What did I say about questions? Sure, yes, a fancy new one. I like that. Now be on your way, and if you do your job well, I'll submit you for a pay grade increase. And me? I won't have to come back to this or any other planet ever again if I don't want to. I'll miss our chats, Mr. Ural. He actually laughed this time. Coral thought she preferred the wheeze.
After about an hour of rigging and another hour of checking and rechecking it, Coral eased her way out of the mining station. The cargo was about forty feet by forty feet, a giant black box that glowed with heat, the nuclear warmth radiating beyond even the insulation, making waves of the air all around it. It was by far the heaviest transport she'd ever done, and that excited her. Her calculations were that it'd take about half a day to reach peak momentum, and then three days of cruising before reaching her destination. Accounting for wind levels and the final half-day of deceleration would be tricky, and that excited her, too. As Loco pushed out into the open expanse of the big firecracker, the train was greeted with a crackling, angry gale, maybe one hundred miles per hour, and filled with enough static to shock a human dead. Coral took it as a warning not to get cocky. She checked the scans of the cargo. Base readouts told her there was a literal ton of silicon in there, some minerals she'd heard of, and lots of stuff she hadn't. She could feel it in her bones. Whatever she was transporting was going to be part of history. The wrong sort of conductor might spend the whole trip wondering what was inside of that nuclear-heated cargo. Maybe they'd wonder so much they'd fly off the track. There goes being a part of history. But not Coral. She just started whistling. The half-day of acceleration went smoothly. Settling into the stable momentum of the maglev, Coral trilled out an improvised melody, upbeat at first, to match the eternal beeping of the comm system. But as she listened to the strange sounds of the world outside, she found herself going down in the scales. There was a wild sort of wailing in the wind, and as it keened through the microscopic crevices of the train, Coral harmonized with it, hitting the minor keys till it was nearly funereal. She stopped herself, perturbed by her own moroseness. And then something odd happened. The sounds of the wind ceased. An impossible sort of silence laid over everything for a few breaths before Coral heard something. Felt it, more accurately, like a vibration through her spine and into her brain, but this vibration was a sound, like a low earthly humming behind her ears, resonating in her cranium. Like how a finger traces the ring of a glass, the friction mounts to release a tune, eerie and fast-fading except Coral was the glass in this case. And she felt stunned. This vibration followed the exact same notes she had been whistling. Woeful, pleading even. Coral didn't know how long she'd been standing there, overtaken by this phenomenon. But when it ended, she immediately noticed that the familiar beeping of the comms computer had gone silent too. The rest of the maglev system was working fine. Coral wondered if it was possible she turned the comms off herself during the trance and didn't even remember doing it. She tried rebooting it several times. Once or twice the computer nearly came to life before fritzing out again. No more friendly beeps to set her whistling to. Then Coral's teeth started to hurt. They downright rattled as a screech cut through the air outside and filled up the inside of the cabin. This was no alien phenomenon, though. An interference array, Coral thought, as she rushed to put on her exosuit, the type used for sabotage, she realized, as an explosion rocked the train and knocked Loco right off its track. Somehow she stayed conscious through it all, the exosuit shielding her from broken bones and whiplash as she slammed into one wall, then another, then back to the first wall again. Then the maglev started rolling, and that kept Coral pinned against the ceiling with enough G-force to make her lose vision temporarily. But still, 
she stayed conscious through it all. After a full minute of it, an eternity really, the train, or what was left of it, careened and thudded to a stop. Coral got her bearings, and then she got her gun. Coral exited the planet's surface via a hidden hatch she'd devised herself for such unfortunate occasions. She was somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, a grain of sand in the great red expanse of Alpha Echo 9. And she was pissed. Before exposing herself, she used a scope to check out the situation. There were two single-person bi-tread rigs, like giant bicycles with tank tracks instead of wheels. Without a doubt, they belonged to the colonists, Thurster pirates, their red flag painted over their machines for all to see. One of the bi-treads had been eviscerated during the explosion by the train track, which had apparently sliced through it with great effectiveness. That takes care of one. The other vehicle was a few hundred yards away from her. It was pulling up alongside the black cargo box, which had separated from the maglev and stuck deep into the ground. Coral made a split decision and started sprinting towards it. Before she could even get in proper range of the colonist, she was a conductor, after all, not a sniper, the man had exited the bi-tread, suited up the same as her, and climbed atop the cargo container. He had some sort of jerry-rigged arc-welding tool and was lighting into the cargo's outer wall. Coral drew the man into her sights. His movements were frantic, desperate even. He had no idea she was there. She tried not to think about it, this man she was about to kill. Then the humming vibrations began again. Melancholy like before, but ten times stronger and louder, rattling the glass of her exo's faceplate. This thing she was experiencing wasn't just in her mind. It was real. It was not a painful sensation, nor did it feel malevolent, but it was strong enough to prevent her from keeping steady aim. The colonist hit a power vein in the containment wall, and there was a bright explosion like a magnesium flare going off. He flew thirty feet through the air, only to be picked up by a gust of wind that carried him another fifty feet in Coral's direction. The strange humming in her helmet continued, but was weaker now. Coral approached the man with her gun drawn. He was on his back, shaking. Up close, it was apparent the explosion had burned a hole through his suit. Either he was running out of oxygen, or mortally wounded, or both. The gun was no longer necessary. Coral kneeled beside him. He transmitted directly to her exosuit's audio, his voice thick with fear. Please, please, you must open the cargo. I, I want to help you make your peace, but I can't do that. There is no peace as long as Dinaric continues to enslave this planet. Enslave? You live here freely. No, not me, not us. We fight for air, for water, for freedom, but not just our freedom. What do you think is inside that box? Coral struggled to ignore the humming in her mind, the sad song that hadn't stopped since she stepped out onto the open land of this place. It's inorganic materials inside there. Silicon. Minerals. Yes, it is those things. But it is alive. That's impossible. Dinaric's own records, they can change the land, turn acid to water, sand into air. That's impossible. Please, try to breathe slowly. Can't you hear it? They're singing to us. They're singing. Coral had seen death before, but this felt different. She was the lone witness for this poor man, the only attendee to his desolate funeral. 
She did not know him, and he had been her enemy, though in his final breaths that didn't seem to matter. The reality of the situation suddenly shocked her. She was stranded. Her comms was neutralized, no way to signal out to Dinaric. It would be two days before they would even realize she's gone. Her beloved loco was dead, and with it her source of air and water filtration. The biblical weather of Alpha Echo 9 was likely to finish her off well before thirst overtook her. Not knowing what to do, she started to sing. Not a whistle or a hum, but instead she released the full potential of her voice. It was a hymn. For the dead colonist, for herself, for the planet. There were no words in her song, only sounds. A few tears rolled down her cheeks, until they were not rolling down with gravity but instead floating upwards, hovering like zero-gravity rain in front of her eyes. The vibrations were back. They were low and beautiful, as if the alluvium was singing alongside coral, so powerfully that somehow it raised these drops of salt water up off her face. Coral gasped and then smiled. She did not feel so lost or alone anymore. She made her way toward the cargo and searched till she found it, the control panel. The heat was rippling off of the container, feeding whatever was inside it. So intense was the temperature that she felt it through her protective shell. The heat was the answer. It would be their freedom. Fire, she thought, just as we needed at the beginning of our time. The explosion could be seen from space, and sure enough, it was. Dinaric's mothership caught the mushroom cloud rising up from Sector 37C and immediately dispatched land cruisers to it. The colonists, not to be left out, followed in close pursuit. A sand hurricane, one hundred miles wide, slowed their approach. Everyone arrived at the detonation site about one week later. By that time, Dinaric had time to analyze their data. The explosion had to have stemmed from the nuclear power of the containment unit, but it ignited the maglev's engine as well. The scientists initially balked at the premise. Such an explosion could never happen by accident in a crash, but there it was. The data didn't lie. Dinaric and the colonists played chicken with one another all the way out to the site, and when they finally arrived, they quieted altogether. What greeted them was a chasm in the ground, one mile wide, and filled with water. All traces of radiation had disappeared, and small pockets of oxygen emanated from the grand well. The ground beneath the water, and from miles around, was a variegation of lustrous colors, bright and metallic and smooth, in stark contrast to the dead red dust that blanketed the rest of the planet. It was clear to Dunark then that their captives had been freed not just loosed but supercharged with the energy of the explosion, now burrowed down beneath the surface. Stranger still was the purring sound that came and went, shivering the surface of the water, as the men made their way to the center of this newborn lake. They had spotted something in the center of it and needed to know what it was, needed to disprove their own feeling deep at the bottom of their gut. But they would arrive to find that it was exactly what they thought it was, even though it was an impossible thing. In the center of this lake was a statue, grown from the planet itself, of a woman, perfectly life-size, the material glowed pure gold. Her face was serious, deep creases in her brow, but there was some measure of peace as her hands reached out openly, forevermore stuck in that pose. Her eyes, 
were hewed with silver. Many years later, the man took a breath. Telling this story was tiring, after all. He lay back and let the heat of the planet comfort him. It relaxed the knots in his old, overworked muscles. Eusonia Wright could not quite comprehend all that she had just learned. She approached the statue cautiously, as if it were some lithe, wild animal that might startle easily and disappear forever. Eusonia dared to reach out and take the conductor's hand, and as they touched, she could feel a quiet ringing, like a small song in her ears. Eli Edelson's passion for writing began in the form of flash fiction while studying English at the University of Chicago. The school awarded him the Napier Wilt Prize for Finest Creative Thesis, and his collection of stories was subsequently published in Euphony Literary Journal. After working in the New York City film scene for a few years, Eli moved to Los Angeles to pursue TV writing. He worked as a writer's assistant in drama showrooms on Netflix and TNT before becoming a staff writer on Freeform's new show, Motherland, Fort Salem. His other recent work includes a digital scripted series and two feature screenplays commissioned by independent producers, as well as video essays for the digital channel Gamma Ray and freelance podcast episodes for ParCast and Brick Moon Fiction. In addition to developing one-hour TV drama, he has also developed a mixed-media docuseries that explores mental health. Eli's goal is to always tackle new ways to structure and present unique stories that resonate with a wide audience through indelible characters. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.